invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. I mentioned last week the uh, importance of reading the uh, Gospels, uh, particularly the Synoptic Gospels. And when you are reading, and I, I mentioned for those of you that have MacArthur Study Bibles and Thompson Chain references that have all sorts of helps in them, and uh, more and more uh, enriched uh, every time you do that. And this passage that I'm going to be reading for you um, is, is a familiar passage. And some of you are, might be saying, wait a minute, there's a story about that. Isn't there something else that took place that was similar to? Uh, actually, it is identical with. The one detail is missing, and that is that Matt, the house was that, that uh, Jesus comes to, per se. Uh, Mark and Luke tell us the rest of the story, and they flesh it out in a little more detail in terms. It might have been like the roof on our house, but uh, uh, they opened up the roof, and they were able to drop him in the midst. Gospels have particular uses and responsibilities, and Luke is writing with a certain emphasis, as is Mark, as is Matthew. Uh, we're the benefactors because we have all three. <coughs> Pardon me. And uh, so we have this child area. It was an oppressed area. And uh, I don't know whether in your travels you've ever come to a town, for instance, that has lost a, a one industry town and they've lost their industry. And I remember um, going for the very first time as a youngster um, to Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, where they do strip mining, where the coal is so close to the surface, it's just right there on top of the ground. There's just stripping it and all the rest. And now we're not allowed to light coal anymore. Uh, and, and as a result, these towns lose. And all of a sudden, you come to a town that just seems to be a depressed place. Stores are closed, houses boarded up, and you say, oh. Well, that was like going to the Gadarenes. This, this, it was oppressed by a large group. Uh, and, and some have speculated that there were colonies of, of, of demonics that were in the area. And you recall what happened after Jesus, to have him in your presence, and to say, move on. And that's exactly what happened. And so where we come this morning is to the result of Jesus being asked to leave. And a matter of fact, you recall the language, the last verse, verse 34 of chapter 8. They implored him to leave their region. They're begging him and came to his own city. Uh, going back. They brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, no blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, but when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given fascinating account, isn't it? Where we have Jesus coming and he's come back home and he's coming and it is the years, and for those of you that have done any reading at all in terms of other books about the Gospels or you've even just sort of had survey courses in Sunday school sometime in your Sunday school career uh, where you're looking at the life of Christ or books about the life of Christ, part of the ministry of Christ that is entitled The Popular Years. 
And of course, those are obviously years that are preceding the cross. And in, in that process of explaining those years, though, <coughs> we see events like this. And so, <coughs> so we have Jesus healing this man. <coughs> Pardon me. Be <coughs> water. So in, in the process of, of all that has taken place, we, we get a glimpse of the mercy of Jesus. You notice something, and maybe you've had this, take your, your book, your crack, your CD, and you say, this is discouraging. Maybe I should just sort of step aside for a while. You don't see that in Jesus. Jesus, immediately after being told, leave the, the land of the Gadarenes, leave this area, Jesus immediately enters into ministry. And people know who he is by this miraculous. This man is like no other man. He preaches not like no one has ever preached before. We know that from the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. But we see him touching the lives of Gentiles. We see him uh, going to this hard area and delivering this one man in particular who was left in the area. Remember the man wanted to follow Jesus, the demonic? He wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus said, no, you stay here. So while Jesus was departing that area, he left the man behind as a testimony and Jesus immediately enters in the ministry. And so he comes to his own city. And note it well. He comes to minister. And they know he's come to minister. And they're expecting ministry from him. And so we have this picture. And for those of you that have read Mark and Luke. And you have that picture of these ones that are carrying him. It's not like today. Every once in a while. Although I have to say I, I get a little nervous sometimes. When I have see individuals uh, that are in the. Uh, the motorized wheelchair and they're on the, our roads and you know how smooth our roads are and, and I'm looking at them and sometimes you see the wheelchair sort of going a little wobbly and I'm driving along and I'm thinking about cars coming at me hoping they're not texting and I'm seeing this person off to my right and I tell you I just have a death grip on the steering wheel and fear for them um, as, as I'm driving along uh, not fear for my wonderful driving uh, expertise but fear that they might hit a pothole and topple over in front of me. Uh, back then, they didn't have that kind of mechanism to get around for sure, nor did they have a plain old chair to get around. They were carried to a place where they were left to beg all day long. And, and here was this man who was totally dependent to eat, totally dependent to get from point A to point B. He had to depend upon them. And he's dependent on these who obviously have a care for him and have a knowledge of it doesn't start off with uh, some kind of an organized healing line. Jesus has come to this particular place. And notice the observation that Jesus makes. The first observation here is not the man on the pallet. The first observation here is of the ones who brought him. And so when, when we have this observation that Matthew makes for us, it's this. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And then it says, seeing their faith. Jesus observes the faith of others. Now, it's important to have this all sorted out because it's easy to get confused on it. But Jesus having seen their faith. And they didn't come and make any doctrinal statement. But Jesus knew them. He had seen the effort that they made to have him come down uh, from above the roof to the, the, the part of, of the building where he was. And Jesus observed them, first of all, of their faith. That they believed. 
that they're looking to Christ, that they're trusting in him. Buzz is the home of the Pittsburgh Penguins, and I know you're concerned about them, and it's the home of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pittsburgh Pirates, but it was also a headquarters for Catherine Kuhlman. And it's the story of a family, it's a true story of a family, and, and they have uh, a daughter that's very, very sick. And we pray for sick people, and we're concerned for sick people. We're thankful for health, and it touches our heart when we know that people are sick, when we see people that are struggling through life and have various disabilities, and it's all about how they, they wanted to go see her. They were trusting in her, and all of a sudden, the very first thing they ran into were her handlers. All of this was carefully orchestrated, and they wanted to know who this individual was, and they wanted to know exactly what was going on in their life, etc., etc. She was confined to a wheelchair, and they based up pushing her to a far part of the auditorium, uh, where number one, because they were in and the hardest places to sit, are, are up close. Because when you're sitting up close, you're, you're, you're looking, somebody looking down at you, and people get very distressed when they have somebody that is to be looking down at them all the time. And also your view is not the same either. And so here she is in the far corner of the auditorium. She can barely see what's going on and can hardly hear what's going on. And, and, and uh, Miss Kuhlman is on the platform. And what happens is this. How many people do you suppose can find a wheelchair were brought up to the platform that night? And the answer is absolutely none. None. Uh, a lot of people with ailments that were invisible ailments that could not be seen, uh, they were mentioned, they got to be on the platform, but the hard cases were over here on the right, and they didn't get to be on the platform at all. They didn't get anywhere near the platform, and at the end, it, it, it chronicles this leaving, this, this parade of wheelchairs leaving the auditorium. How sad. Well, here's a real tough case. This is a man that is confined to a pallet in the most difficult of times. And here we have Jesus making the very first observation. It's an observation of the faith of those that brought him in the first place. Now their faith is rightfully placed. And we cannot say that about the late uh, Miss Kuhlman. But their faith is rightfully placed because it's placed in Christ. My hope is in the Lord. My hope is built on Christ. My hope is trusting in him. What are you hoping for this morning, incidentally? Who are you placing your hope in? Who are you placing your trust in? Who are you placing your eternal trust in? Because we notice something fascinating in this passage, don't we? So the first observation then is this. Jesus observes their faith, their commitment in bringing this man to, the, to him in the first place. But secondly, he says something to the individual. And what he says to the individual is this. He says, take courage. But he calls him something special. He says, take courage, son. And he uses a family term. And this, this is a wonderful term. And, and it, is, it is an expression of compassion and endearment. When he calls him, literally, my child, my son. And so he, he gives him a call to courage. That surely must have raised some hope in his heart that the Lord of glory would call upon him and would address him. But there's something else. The sentence doesn't stop with take courage, son. Notice what he says. Take courage, son. 
your sins are forgiven. That's the starting point. The starting point, we think, is having him get up off the pallet and go home. That's not the starting point. That's not the greatest need. The greatest need of anyone, whether they're able-bodied or disabled, is their need of a Savior, their need to have sins forgiven. And we miss that, and we miss it as a culture, and we miss it continually. And Jesus shows us this is the point. This is the point. This man is a sinner. We're not to look at the disabled and say, well, that's their cross to bear in this life, and they have a free pass into heaven. No, they don't. No, they don't. Years ago, I was working with uh, those that were um, regarded and labeled. And you have to have a label. People say, well, don't label me. You have to have a label. You have to know what's going on in people's lives and what their needs are and how we're best able to help. And I was working with those uh, that uh, were mentally disabled. And because we were working in the Christian context and gotten a lot of flack on this, one of the things we were very concerned about was this. In dealing with those that have a mental handicap, we wanted to convey to them that they're sinners. You say, how dare you do that? No, no. That's their need. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Applies to all. And it was necessary that we teach right and wrong. Where'd that come from? God. And teach them to live in reference to God. That's important. We don't know how this man got disabled. He may well have been born that way. But we know one thing for sure. He was a sinner. And if he had gone away, able-bodied, able to walk away, what would we have had? We would have had a disabled sinner brought into the presence of Christ, and then we would have had an able-bodied sinner walk out of the presence of Christ. That's not a happy ending. That means now he's able to do his own, own sinful desires. He didn't have that ability before. But what we have is Jesus addressing the greatest need that this man has. And the greatest need that he has is the need of sins forgiven. Sins have so disabled us that we don't think right about Christ, right about eternity. You're here this morning and you're unsaved. The reason why you're unsaved is you're not thinking rightly about eternity, rightly about sin, rightly about your need of Christ. If you thought rightly about sin, rightly about eternity, rightly about your need of Christ, you would ask the Lord to save you, and he would. But because you don't, he doesn't. It's just like last week in, 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 in the area of the Gadarenes. When they say leave, Jesus, go, go. Jesus goes. He's not obligated to hang around and wait and wait and wait for for. Mr. and Mrs. Contemporary to come to him and, and Miss Young Contemporary and Mr. Young Contemporary, young up and rising individual, uh, self-centered individual. Our culture is that. Jesus is not beholden to wait upon you. It's those who wait upon the Lord. Not the Lord waiting upon us. And here he comes into the life of this man and he says, take courage, my son. And the best news comes to him that he could ever imagine. Your sins are forgiven. Forgiven. It's amazing. 
And it highlights for us the priority of forgiveness of sins. That was the issue. That was the greatest need. In our day and age in so-called healing meetings, what do they come for? They want to see the big event. I wonder how long some of these people would last if they said, we're, we're, we're not doing this anymore. We're just strictly going to open up God's word, passage after passage, verse after verse, week after week. We're going to preach the word. We're going to call people to repent and believe and no more of the other stuff. And do you know what? People would probably get saved. The sideshow would end. The gospel would be preached. And the greatest need of man would be addressed through the proclamation of God's word. People need to hear about Christ. And Jesus comes and gives him the greatest gift. Now, I, I, I want to point out something that's very important here because sometimes people hear a passage like this and they go off on a tangent. It's important to see because some people will say, well, wait a minute now. You mean to tell me that Jesus just sort of walks into the situation and, and he says, your sins are forgiven. This individual doesn't repent. This individual doesn't believe. None of that happens. We have to understand something, and that is you can't play up one passage of Scripture and put it up against other passages of Scripture. The clear teaching of Scripture is this. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to exercise I don't want to offend anyone. We have to exercise common sense on these things. There's only one plan of salvation. Only one way to salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is implied and understood that this man obviously has some understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus has been preaching all over the place. That's been the entirety of his ministry. And so we must understand, we can't end up with two plans of salvation. We can't have a plan of salvation for the disabled, a plan of salvation for those that have never heard uh, about Jesus and say, well, just as long as you're sincere, it'll all work out. You must believe in the Lord. And this man obviously had some faith in him, and it may well be that Jesus, when he was talking about the faith, not only in seeing their faith in verse 2, may well have seen his faith as well. Jesus knows and sees all things. And so we don't want to walk away and say, here's a person that got saved without repentance and faith. No, no. You must believe in Christ. And so Jesus knows the audience. And remember what we said about two weeks ago? That a lot of times the reason why miracles are different from place to place to place to place is that the miracle is oftentimes being performed not so much for the individual who receives the miracle, but for the audience who is there viewing the miracle. And that's what we see here. And you notice it in the passage. So Jesus comes, and we never would ever give the impression that somehow we can be saved without believing in Jesus. No, this man had to have had resident faith in him, or Jesus would not have addressed him the way that he did. But notice, scribes and Pharisees. This is who the, this miracle is really for. It's for them. Jesus, the merciful Savior. Jesus, the kind Savior. Addresses this man. And notice, he addresses him in his sin. 
Nothing's happened beyond that. He's addressed him regarding his sin. And now the scribes, these are supposed to be the experts. They have the privilege. It is a privilege to be in the word. Be in the word as much as you can. It is a privilege to be in the word. I am highly privileged to be in the word, to, to be granted the privilege and the time, and it does take time, to open up the scriptures, to open up commentaries by wise men, to look for counsel, and to try and have a feel for what is taking place. This is a wonderful privilege. And so here are the scribes. They had that privilege. They had the privilege to be in the word. They were the ones that were responsible for accurately transmitting scripture from document here to this blank piece of papyra here. They were responsible to take up pen and to get it right. And they were in that orbit of God's word. They lived in that orbit. And it's possible, you see, to have a little bit of head knowledge, a little bit of knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. And these people had head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. And they immediately, not knowing who Jesus was, even though he had proven who he was, even though he had proven it by his preaching and by the works that he did, he had proven clearly who he was. They didn't know who he was because they accused him and they called him in a very slang way, this fellow blasphemes. This blasphemer is literally what they're saying. This is a blasphemer. Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate. And their response is he's a blasphemer. He's kicked God off his throne. He's dethroned the Lord of glory. He's made himself to be something that he isn't making claims that he has no authority to make. And they're mocking him. And Jesus goes right to the heart. First of all, the haunting words in verse 4. Jesus knowing their thoughts. I find that haunting. Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows my thoughts. He knows what's going on up there. It's not just that the wheels are turning, but he knows everything that's going on in your mind. I don't know everything that's going on in your mind. I don't want to insult you. I'm not saying that your mind is blank. I'm just saying it's a blank to me. I don't know what's going on in your mind. You know what's going on in my mind better than I know what's going on in your mind. Because I have one thing in mind, it's this passage. And I haven't even thought about lunch yet. And some pie. So. And I know what you're thinking. See? But here's the picture. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, and in knowing their thoughts, Jesus makes this pronouncement. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? When Jesus knows your thoughts as he does, he knows your heart. The heart and the thought life are married, aren't they? We can fake being friendly to people. We can fake being Mr. Nice Guy. 
Mrs. Nice Gal. We, we can fake all of that to one another. But Jesus knows the heart, the intention of the heart, and the performance. And he knows when it's all performance and it's not real. And Jesus knows their heart. They like the idea that people looked up to the scribes. They like the prestige of being a scribe. They like that kind of respect that came by being a scribe. They enjoyed all of that. Those were the perks of being a scribe. Those were the perks of their job. And they enjoyed it thoroughly. It allowed them to lord it over people. It allowed them to conduct themselves as know-it-alls to the people. And it allowed them to make pronouncements about Jesus to the people, which they did and continued to do throughout the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus says, here's their problem. Your heart is evil. Your heart is wicked. It's fascinating, you know, and we'll get to it when we're reading through Romans, that when you get into Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul enters into a, a, a volley of quotes from the Psalms. It starts in verse 10 of chapter 3 in, in the book of Romans. And he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then he talks about their mouth. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now the mouth that is full of cursing and bitterness comes from the heart that is full of cursing and bitterness. And here they are. And they're mocking. And Jesus pops the question to them. And it's a hard one. The first one, of course, and they're both in the interrogative form. Well, the first one is obviously regarding the evil. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Verse 4. They accuse him of blasphemy. And Jesus asks them point blank question. How'd you like to be in that crowd? When all of a sudden you're pointed out. And Jesus says... Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? How embarrassing. What's the reflex action? I wasn't thinking any evil. Yeah. Kid comes home, throws books on the table, slams door, stomps upstairs. What's your problem? I don't have any problems. Now... At this point, Mother would say, oh, yes, you do, and it's me, and we're going to deal with that attitude. But here they are, and he pops the question, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? They had no answer. Now, the answer is this. Why are they thinking evil in their hearts? Because their heart is evil. That's it. But the next question is really heavy, and notice what it is. And he's setting up something here. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, Jesus has already said, your sins are forgiven. He's quoting himself here in the form of this question. What's the easiest thing to do? 
Now, for the scribes, the easiest thing to do, in a sense, would be your sins are forgiven. How, do you, how can you say that? Well, because nobody can see that, can they? When you came to Christ, and whether it was in a very public form or a very quiet place, and, and you confessed your sins, when you got on the scales at home, were you lighter? You say, well, no, that's silly. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Did something go flying away from you? You say, well, I don't see anything. No. You can't see sins being forgiven. Can you see the paralytic get up off the, the pallet and walk? Yeah, you can see that. And Jesus really lays a heavy question on them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. And the fascinating thing is this. The language is very specific. Jesus doesn't make it real hard by saying, which is easier to do? I wonder how they would have handled that one. Because saying something and doing something are two different things, aren't they? And here they are. I bet it was quiet there. You could have heard a pin drop. This is the defining moment. And here it is. And Jesus is going to explain something. Notice what comes next. Verse 6. Jesus is going to show his power. Jesus is going to show his deity. And he says, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. See, this is not just about the healing. We mentioned that earlier. This is not just that event about the healing that Jesus is doing. It goes far beyond that. This is Jesus making a declaration of who he is. And he's making the declaration in front of some pretty skeptical people. And he says, why is all this happening? Why is, it, why is this man here on this pallet? Why is it that I started off, first of all, by saying, son, your sins are forgiven? Which is easiest? Which is the more difficult on the scale of difficulty? Which is it? And so we have this picture. And so here it is. Jesus, as he is speaking, says, this is done so that you will know the Son of Man has authority. Christ has come with full authority. Jesus did not earn authority. There was not some kind of a bar mitzvah for Jesus where before he's the Son of God and we concede he's the Son of God, but he doesn't really have authority. No, Jesus had authority. He is always the Son of God. He is always the Lord of glory. And we have this picture of Jesus in front of these men. And here's this paralytic. He's still on the pallet. He hasn't been healed yet. His sins are forgiven. And Jesus says, you need to know that I have authority. I am the Lord. Our culture, our church culture, desperately needs to know that he is the Lord. We had for about, oh, going on 60, 70 years, 
a, a teaching that said that you can have Jesus as Savior, not as Lord. No, you can't. You don't divide Jesus up. This is not some kind of an installment salvation. Make a little commitment here, and then a little later we'll make a little more, and then a little later we'll make a little more, and then a little later. Are you ready for full commitment yet? Doesn't make sense, does it? I feel silly saying that. I'm pleased to have announced so and so is half saved, half committed. We're going to have a half baptism. What are we going to do with this person? What are we going to do with these people who make a claim? Well, I, 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 I've trusted Jesus, but I haven't quite surrendered yet. It's all about surrender. It's all about bowing to Christ. It's not some things to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give. It's everything is surrendered to Christ. I bow to him. I honor him. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of glory. And here is, are, are these skeptical scribes. And Jesus asks them questions they can't answer. Because in order to answer the questions the right way, they would have to say, you are the Lord. And their unbelieving heart won't do that. Just like for you that are unsaved, you have to confess, he is the Lord. And your unbelieving heart won't do that. And it takes a sovereign work of grace and mercy from almighty God to humble unrepentant sinners and to make them repentant. And here is this man who has resident knowledge and Jesus has forgiven his sins and Jesus says, all of this is taking place because you need to know I am the Lord. I am the Son of God. In, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, Jesus shows his power sickness. This is a mini-review. In, in chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, Jesus shows his power over nature. Last week, 28 to uh, 32, and then beyond, actually, Jesus shows his power or, over demons, over Satan. Now, in this passage, he shows his power over sin. He is the one who is able to forgive sin. He is the only one who is able to forgive sin. You and I might say something that's not kind, and periodically we have to go say to a husband, to a wife, son to daughter, daughter to mom to dad, son to mom to dad, somewhere along the line, if we have any grace at all in us, there's that time where we have to go and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And there are those times where we say, it's all right. But you see, the sin of your heart and my heart cannot be fully dealt with by just sort of saying, sorry, Lord, Oh, well, these things happen. No, 
Why, why, why is it that we sin against mom, dad, son, daughter, friend, neighbor? Why, why, why is it that we do it? It's because we're sinners. And it, it marks us as those who need a greater forgiveness than just that, that homebound kind of forgiveness that is freely offered. It means that we need forgiveness from one who is able to, to so forgive us of the sins that our sins are blotted out from his presence, remembered no more. And Jesus is able to do that. This is the glory of the gospel that you can go to somebody. Sometimes people, they just want to chronicle all the bad things they've done. And when people do it, they just want to say, will you stop it? Stop it. I'm not your priest. Christ is the priest. He is the one who forgives. Come to him. Bow to him. Confess your sins to him. And he grants forgiveness to all who truly come to him in faith and repentance. And now, as, as we have the silent scribes, and Jesus asks the question, which is the hardest, which is most important, which is the primary of, of priorities here, which one? And he says to the paralytic, verse 6, last words, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And guess what? He got up and he went home. But he didn't go the same way he came. He left walking and he left redeemed. He left saved. But there's a downside to this event. And we have to read carefully. And we always need to read carefully. There's, there's a tragedy here. And you say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He got, he, he sins forgiven, and he's walking home. Now you're telling us there's a tragedy here? Yeah, there is. Notice the passage. Notice verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. What's it in the context of? It's in the context of the healing. They were awestruck by that. They didn't. Marvel at the forgiveness of sins. They enjoyed the show part. That's the part they enjoyed. Was it a necessary part? Yeah, the young man was there in need of healing, and the Lord healed him. And they're awestruck by it. Who wouldn't be awestruck by it? It's fascinating. It's amazing. And here they are. The crowds, they saw it. They were awestruck. They actually glorified God that he had given authority to men. But you notice something in this passage. They didn't believe. It doesn't talk about, and many believed on him. They were amazed about him. They were astonished by him. They were captivated in him. But it doesn't say that they repented. It doesn't say that they believed. And we're not to assume that. Greek language is very clear. You see, in a sense, they misunderstood the Son of Man. And they needed to know something about the Son of Man that they should have known, and it was this. Jesus came to save sinners. Matthew 1, 21. Why did Jesus come? Was it about healing paralytics? Part of his ministry, yeah. 
Was it about granting sight to the blind? That's part of his ministry, no doubt about it. But why did he come? Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Their greatest need is a need to be forgiven of sins. It's easy to get swept up in the emotion of the moment. We have a culture that is easily swept up into the emotion of the moment. All you have to do is go to a, a sports event and when the score sign says louder, people automatically, robotically, who would argue all the way from the rink to the Tim Hortons arena on the free will of man will sit in a sports arena and when it says get louder, they get louder and they start cheering like maniacs. Except one night when there was a hockey team that shall remain nameless, I won't mention who it was, and they were number 20 in the, in the standings and the fans were saying, we're number 20, we're number 20. We just respond, don't we? They responded to the miracle when they needed to respond to the Lord. Well, what do you make of Jesus this morning? Hmm? What do you make of that? And what do you make of your sin this morning? And here was a sinful paralytic who went home a saved man and went home as an able-bodied man. Crowds were awestruck, but they weren't saved. And we need to go beyond being casually interested in Jesus. And we need to go a lot further. And we need to call upon him. And you who are unsaved need to call upon him. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of glory. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. And he comes with the authority to forgive sins. And he does forgive sins. And this passage shows us that he forgives sins. And those who have been following the Lord Jesus Christ display in their lives that they've had sins forgiven. But it hasn't happened in your life for some of you. And you have need to call upon him while he is near. He didn't stay in the gathering area. He left. And he is not obligated to stay in your area and wait upon you. You're the one who is obligated to call upon him. And may you call upon him and be saved this day. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we bow before you. We pray, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts this day and teach us, Father, from this example of the primacy of forgiveness of sins. There's no greater need that we have than to have sins forgiven. There's no greater responsibility that we have than that of calling upon the Lord and seeking him. And we pray that you would speak to the hearts of each one of us this day. And Lord, for those who have been walking with you for years, make us thankful. Help us to grow. Make us holy. More faithful. 
more prayerful. God, you help us, we pray. You speak to the hearts of those who are outside of Christ, and we pray, Lord God, that you would so bring conviction upon them that this would be the day where they stop and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to him, and believe and be saved. We thank you for Christ. Without him, we have no hope. He came, he went to the cross, he conquered sin, he is Lord, and he grants salvation to all who come. And so speak to our hearts this day, we pray, in Jesus' name.